0: Hey, what's up, everybody? John Odermatt here, host of Felony Friday. And did you know that we have a weekly show dedicated to sports and gambling and telling ridiculous stories? It's not a uh, public show. It's behind our paywall in the Lions of Liberty Pride. It's called Degenerate Gamblers. It is myself and Brian McWilliams and the elusive legal counsel of the Lions of Liberty, RICO. And every week on Degenerate Gamblers, we review what's going on in college football, pro football. Maybe we talk a little bit of playoff baseball. Not much, though. So. But more importantly, we tell ridiculous stories from our daily lives and from our past. So in order to get access to that, you got to join the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can go to patreon.com slash Liberty to get access.
1: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host,
0: John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And Felony Friday, if you don't know, Now you know, it's focused on the criminal justice system. This week specifically, I'm really, really excited. we got a little bit different show, but a very entertaining show. Uh, If you're into uh, true crime, if you're into hearing about the ins and outs of murder investigations, maybe entertaining is not the right word, captivating, fascinating. Um, These stories obviously are very tragic, but I have a guest today who uh, he's a former detective from Ireland. Across the pond, and uh, he's written a book about the ins and outs of some of Ireland's most notorious crimes. So I'll introduce him in just a minute. You're gonna you're gonna want to be able to check out his book and learn about him. Go to the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash FF202 and like I always say, guys, Foundry Friday—one of three shows on Lions of Liberty. There's two other shows. First one every week on Monday, hosted by Mark Clare, where Mark interviews liberty thought leaders. If you're like, "What's libertarianism? What's uh, this philosophy? What are people, these people thinking?" Tune into Mark's show. Listen to his guests. They know a lot more than I do, or any of us do, about the principles of liberty. On Wednesday, we have a show hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's called Electric Liberty Land. It's focused on comedy, culture, and liberty. Um, If you're sick and tired of just getting your current events from CNN or Fox News or crazy people on Twitter, then maybe try tuning into Brian's show, Electric Liberty Land, and uh, hope break down the uh, the current events and the news for you of every single week. And of course, Friday, this show, Felony Friday, you get all three for the price of nothing by subscribing on whatever podcast app uh, is your favorite podcast app. I don't discriminate. Wherever you're listening to this show right now, just go subscribe, rate, review, rinse, repeat, tell your friends, share the show. That's all I got, guys. Let's, uh, Let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Pat Mary. Pat hails from across the Atlantic in Ireland. Uh, Pat is a former detective inspector with the Garda Síochána. Over the course of his career, he was involved in the investigation of some of Ireland's most notorious murder cases. And he is the author of a book, an awesome book that is out now. It's called The Making of a Detective... A guard's story of investigating some of Ireland's most notorious crimes. Pat, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Hello John, how are you?
0: I'm doing well and uh, it's great to to connect with you. Um, you know it's it's funny how uh we were able to come in contact. I don't know if it's funny, but it's 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 interesting to me is one of my friends over here in the U.S., uh, one of my uh, co-workers, i won't use names—but uh, got married to uh, one of your friends over there in
1: Ireland. So that was—that's correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a good wedding, and we had a good, uh, good day of it. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: that's that, that's good to hear. And uh, she mentioned your book to me, and I, I was like, "Well, that sounds like a very interesting, uh, interesting guy to talk to. Interesting book, and it is. It's a fantastic book. And I got to say." Um, You're a very good storyteller.
1: Oh no, that's good. Thank you, John. Thank you. Um, It's the book is number four bestseller in Ireland nonfiction at the moment, so it's doing well.
0: That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And you know, obviously, most of my guests here on the show are are from the U.S. You know, I'm I'm based in the U.S., but uh, you're not the first guest I've had on um, from uh, from across the pond. Here, I did interview probably more than a year ago uh johan Hari, who was the author of chasing the scream and also a uh former uh uk uh undercover detective neil woods and you know I, I think it's good um you know for my listener base who's a lot is obviously u.s but hopefully we get some from ireland i think it's good to get a, a taste of the criminal justice system and how things work in in every country
1: um yes indeed yes uh um, we have, uh, I've spent 33 years in, on Garda and I started off as a raw recruit and worked my way up and got a liking for investigations and then was picked as a detective, uh, and became a detective. And then I was involved in some murder investigations and I got promoted and moved up the line. And I eventually, uh, finished my career after 33 years as a detective inspector and as a fully trained senior investigating officer. Now, during the course of my career, I also qualified in uh, scenes of crime and I could examine scenes of murders or whatever. Uh, I was fully qualified in that as well. So it gave me a good base to, to be uh, an investigator because I knew and had dealt with uh, other areas of, uh, let's say, uh, murders uh, that gave me good insight before I became a detective inspector.
0: So, uh, I'm curious what, what first got you interested in, in going down that path? Because um, if I'm remembering correctly from the book, you didn't have family or you didn't have anyone that was, you know, any mentors or anything like that, that, that had done this. What, what built that desire for you to follow this career?
1: Right. Well, it's funny. Uh, I have been the only policeman uh, in my family. Uh, going back uh, a long number of years. And uh, the reason I took an interest in it was, firstly and foremost, uh, when I was a, a young child, uh, I encountered a policeman in uniform on the street while I was sent to do some messages for my mother. And this policeman spoke to me and said, hello, young man, how are you? And I was totally taken back by this man in the uniform and he was uh, a fine cut of a gentleman and spick and span, and I really was taken back by this person. Uh, I went home to my mother after doing the messages, and uh, I was about 8, 10 years of age, and uh, I told her I'd met a policeman, and then she explained to me what, an, what a policeman does, and I was taken by the fact that these people were there to protect society and to look after uh, good people and lock up the bad people, and uh, I was sort of taken with that. But on top of that, uh, my father had a friend who was in the police, and uh, he used to call to our house, and he would be in uniform. And of course, uh, he would always be messing with me and put me in a in a, an arm lock, and then he put handcuffs on me and that type of thing, and uh, he would let me see the baton that he had, and he'd let me wave it around. And so uh, I was t- totally taken with this uh, uh, concept of, of what a policeman was. So when I, uh, and I, I mentioned this in my book, The Making of a Detective, when I was 17 years of age, I went to my local police station to fill out an application form to join the police, and the sergeant who was there uh, got a hold of me and shook me and said you're, you're a bit thin, you need to put more meat on you and also you need to be 18 years of age not 17. So he sent me on my way and I was uh, obviously a little bit disappointed but uh, when I spent the next seven years in the private sector and I had worked initially uh, in a carpet factory uh, doing wages and been uh, working on computers, Mm -hmm. and then I uh, left that company and joined uh, an American company called Union Camp, uh, which dealt with, uh, they were manufacturers of packaging, corrugated packaging, and I eventually worked my way into the design department there, and I think there's where my detective career began, believe it or not, in the private sector, because I was tasked in that job of having to come up with uh, packaging solutions for companies uh, that used corrugated packaging. So it meant that I had to uh, go to companies who had automated machines and see what packaging requirements they needed. Uh, I would design the packaging for them and uh, design it in such a fashion that it would be uh, cost-effective for them. Now I became very good at that, and uh, I had this uh, train of thought of solving problems. So when I joined the guards, uh, I I had still this mindset. And uh, when I was uh, in one of my the stations, one of the first stations I was put one of the first police stations I went to, I wanted to get into uh, investigations and. Uh, the opportunity arose uh, only because i worked hard in the un- as uniform policeman to solve crime which i did and i was brought up into what we call plain clothes uh, detective work like you're not a detective you're just a plain clothes uniform guy and you're helping out the detectives but during the course of that period of time there was uh, some murders that occurred And I was brought in on the investigations uh, because I was a plainclothes member Mm -hmm. of the police. And I observed very uh, intently all the aspects that goes on in a murder investigation and how it worked and how it operated and the various stakeholders in the the, uh, investigation team. And I was just totally taken with this a uh, phenomenon of solving murders. And one of the first murders that I was on, and it's in the book, uh, a mm-hmm. girl by the name of Marilyn Ryn, who went missing one right. Christmas. And uh, her body was found uh, in, in shrubbery uh, in, uh, and uh, she, she had been raped and strangled. And it was the first case in Ireland where DNA was used to solve the crime. So that was a... a Uh, A huge case and a a very well-investigated, and I was part of that team. But I was only very young. I was junior. I was only learning the ropes. But from my experience as being in this private sector, working with the American company, I had developed the skill of looking for uh, ways of solving uh, problems. So I knew myself at that stage, this is what I really want to do. And I reckon I could solve. I reckon I could do a good job. Mm-hmm. Now,
0: if if I could c- come back yeah. for a minute to the to the DNA, because obviously you know since since that first introduction there um, in Ireland, you know I'm, I'm sure it's grown exponentially as it has here. The use of it in the United States, yes. But but there are uh, there are drawbacks. There are some potential pitfalls and risks with the use of DNA. Correct? Can you? Can you elaborate on some way in some of the benefits and some of the things that that, that, some of the areas that can be tricky while using it?
1: Well, what I would say in respect of DNA, not only does it help to prove uh, a a guilt of someone, it also can be used to uh, prove the innocence of people. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very good tool in the toolbox of, of an investigator. However, uh, We do have well. We don't use it here in Ireland as much, but there's things called low copy DNA, which is used in the UK, and I believe it's not as uh, it's very hard to uh, develop low copy DNA, and it's not as a let's say definitive as just your ordinary DNA, you know. But. like so many crimes have been solved uh, since the development of DNA. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's phenomenal really, but uh, it's like every piece of evidence it has to be evaluated Mm -hmm. and represented and uh, shown that uh, that evidence has been acquired through a legal uh, format like that. It's just not a, uh, you know, that there's, there's, there's structures to, uh, developing DNA and like not only at a scene, but you have a suspect and you want to get his his saliva sample or a blood sample. Or that uh, there's certain mechanisms to do that, like through the arrest and detention uh, format. Like you know, so uh, what I would say is that uh, it's 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 um, I think it's a, it's a very strong tool in the in the uh, and there's there's less negative about it than there like there's more positives about it. And as I say, it does show to uh prove someone's innocence if you know uh if someone is arrested and they're detained and there's dna at the scene and it's not the person that you've arrested well like you know that shows that like so it's not a case of uh uh, trying to fit a square peg in a a round hole like you know
0: yeah i I thought it was um interesting in in the case you were just talking about the 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 ryan case I, i believe um The uh, suspect, or one of the suspects, I'm not sure if he was a suspect at the time during the investigation, but uh, you talk about going out and and collecting DNA from, I guess, the persons of interest and a a whole, I I forget how many samples you collected, but he came forward when he was asked, came forward confidently thinking that because I forget what the amount of time was, two weeks or 12 days or something had passed, and I guess he back then even had already done some preliminary research, right. About DNA evidence thinking he was safe. Right.
1: Yes, but, that's uh, correct. Was, this, yeah. the, the suspect in this case, this is where a lady went out on the Christmas party and never returned home. Uh, she lived on her own and her her brother uh, sort of became suspicious when she hadn't contacted him the following day. Cause we're a very close family. Uh, we, we, uh, We're putting it all together. We followed her, let's say, from her party uh, and tried to reconstruct her movements that night. And we could put her in in a fast food restaurant on O'Connell Street in Dublin. We then, uh, the only way home was by taxi or the Nightlink bus. So we uh, tried to trace everybody that was on the Nightlink bus. And eventually we found someone who said that they sat beside her. So then we knew that she had taken the Nightlink bus uh, home, but the Nightlink bus stopped at a certain uh, distance from her house, and she had to take a. Sh- she would have had to walk and take a shortcut home, through some tunnels, and down through a, a let's say an overgrown valley before she got home. And uh, the suspect, uh, or as part of our investigation, we done what we call door to door inquiries, which is common enough with all police forces and in the area where uh, she got off the bus and between there and her home, we conduct the door-to-door inquiries and the suspect, uh, when the guard, the policeman knocked on his door, he opened it and said, the policeman said, look, we're making inquiries about the lady who was murdered. We found her body in the.'" and he said, yes, uh, it's a shocking thing. Yeah, come on in. And he brought him, the guard, the policeman into the sitting room and he said to him, do, "Do you know anything about it?" And he says, I, "I wasn't out that night." He said he was, he was, he was at home. But after that conversation, this man's wife entered the sitting room, and he introduced the policeman to her. Said, "Look at this—the the policeman. They're making inquiries about that girl who was killed." Oh yeah, she, she—that's that was terrible. You were out that night, uh, and he had mm. con- so she had put him on the spot. So he panicked and he said, oh yeah, I was out that night. An actual fact I walked under the tunnels. I think i seen that woman. She was with somebody and made up a description of a guy. He was tall. He was blonde hair, this, that, and the other. So by, by saying this, he was putting himself in a person of interest uh, category in that he was, uh, he had seen the lady alive, a short distance away from where her body was found. And, on that basis, we would find it uh, um, uh, prudent to take a, a DNA sample from him. But he was very forthcoming in that he was very, very intelligent guy. He was a member of MENSA. He was uh, quite clever. Uh, and he, would, uh, he, he had re- researched uh, semen and how long the semen would last in the body. And we had found this, the body 16 days after she had gone missing, But uh, he discovered that the semen would only last in the body for 14 days and that it wouldn't be uh, useful for examination. But what he didn't factor in is that it was at Christmas time and there was three hard nights of frost Mm -hmm. which preserved the semen. uh, uh, And on that basis, we were able to get a a profile from uh, from the semen that was recovered from her body. So we had, a, we had something to compare uh, the crime scene with. And uh, on that basis, we made up our list of people to uh, put in the uh, person of interest list and to see if they would volunteer a sample. Uh, and he volunteered a, a, a swab from the mouth. And he said, yeah, he even said, I hope you catch the bastard. And uh, he was thinking that we would not be able to match it up, that uh, from his inquiries on the internet. So anyway, the match was made, and he was then uh, obviously the suspect, uh, and uh, he was arrested on suspicion of the murder, and he admitted it uh, relatively straight away because he knew the DNA was, uh, you know, fairly foolproof mm-hmm. at that stage. <laughs> So uh, he admitted that he had uh, he had uh, been out at a party himself. Uh, he went to a certain part of the city to get a prostitute, and even they were busy that night, and there was none around. And he ended up walking five miles home to his house, uh, and it was lashing rain. So he was, you know, fed up, uh, <laughs> not satisfied, and. He, he just happened to get walking behind this lady as she had got off the bus because we were both heading in the one direction. Mm-hmm. And he decided then to, to uh, attack her, which he did. He uh, raped her. And uh, then according to him, he said, she said to him, you're from around here. I recognize you. And he said, I had to kill her then, like, you know. So he ended up uh, strangling her and leaving her body in the ditch, like, you know?
0: Just just crazy. And this is somebody that had no criminal past, right?
1: This man had no criminal past whatsoever. He was married. He had a child. He was uh, that was it. He was uh, he worked uh, uh, in in, uh, a company that um, uh, he was highly respected. He was very well educated and he didn't commit to our notice for anything ever. But uh, what made him do this was just a spur of the moment, um, you know, desire, and that's exactly what he did. Uh, it's 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 a psychopathic uh, sort of tendencies because when he was arrested and he made his admissions and that he showed very little remorse, and that's something I noticed over the years from dealing with murderers like our psychopathic people. They they have very little uh, emotional attachment to what they've done, you know. And uh he was just another one of them, and he pleaded guilty and got life imprisonment and he's still locked up at the moment, you know
0: wow so. but one of the interesting things you talk about in the book, and I'd never thought about this before, but it, it does make sense is as you're investigating these cases, um, you talk about the murder victim in the case sort of getting to know them so well that you almost feel like a connection or a friendship with them um, and they almost come alive, their life, because you, you get to know their life so well. Can you uh, elaborate on that phenomenon?
1: Yes. It's always been my um, state of mind is that when you go to a murder scene and you're looking someone there who's been shot or stabbed or beaten to death, like they hold all the answers to what you want to find out. They are someone who has been snatched or taken from life, taken from this earth without their consent, like they have Mm -hmm. been just taken, their life has been taken. And as a policeman, you owe a duty of care to that person and their family. So like they're looking on you to provide the answers. And uh, I always find it that you have to look into that person's past. You have to look into their friends, their everything to find out about them, maybe sometimes to get a lead. And you learn so much about them and from their families that you believe that you would know that person. If they came back the following day, you'd know everything about them. You'd, you'd, you'd be able to strike up a conversation with them. Like, you know, so uh, these are people who, who have been taken that shouldn't have been taken. And it's up to the police man, the senior investigating officer to do a professional job, to be able to find out the truth of what happened this this person and the families of these deceased, like all they ever want to know is number one, who killed their loved one, why they killed a loved one and will justice be served. And they're the three things that they really, families really want to know. And if you can deliver the answers to, to the families, they will be very happy and they will be, you know, you've done a good job. And um, uh, obviously there's, you know, a murder investigation just, just to stop at just catching the, the, the killer. You have to go through a whole court process and there's a whole administrative end of that, like where you have to disclose documents and you have to present the case, and you know, that, that everything has been done right. And so, like, there's a lot of work in a murder investigation. I don't think people realise the amount of work that goes into it, especially here in Ireland where we have to disclose all the uh, elements of the investigation to the defense before the case. And they do not have to disclose anything to us about how they're going to defend their client or anything like that. Hmm. So, you know, we're off to a bad, (laughs) a bad start, but uh, that's an aspect here. I don't think you have over there. And I think over there you have, let's say here, if if you get convicted of murder, it's life imprisonment, but life imprisonment here can, can, Serve a sentence between eighteen and twenty-three years, uh, where in America it's life is life, and mm. uh, rightly so. Or the death penalty. Now, I wouldn't be in favor of the death penalty, but I certainly will be in favor of someone who pre-plans a murder and is caught. Uh, they should serve the rest of their life in prison mm. uh, as a punishment for what they've done. You know. Yeah. Um,
0: so uh, uh, one thing you talk about in the book is, and when I first read it. Um, it, it kind, of, it kind of took me back for a minute. You talk about the, the gut instinct. Um, I think I can't remember which case you were talking about. I think it was maybe the the Joe O'Reilly case where you were talking about. You had, you just kind of knew that yeah, that, that this yeah. guy was was guilty. And I'm curious how how do you weigh or, or how, how do you use that gut instinct and maybe not let it get you off path and and you know still. um still follow the track of the evidence if you know what I mean
1: yeah well Joe O'Reilly was a very famous case here in Ireland and was one of the most notorious crimes in the last 50 years because it's where his wife uh, Rachel was found battered to death in her home and uh, how the alarm was raised that she she did not collect her children from the creche and uh, Joe was informed that Rachel's wife hadn't collected the children and he then contacted Rachel's mother who came out to the house and discovered Rachel's body in the house. Now, Joe uh, alleged that he was working all morning and he was in Dublin City and that's where he was. Now, when we looked into it, uh, we discovered that Joe uh, hadn't been in work and no one had seen him in in where he said he was and in respect of this particular case, uh, how it became so famous is that apart from Joe's demeanour and his, his arrogance uh, to, pro- to proclaim his innocence, uh, we had his mobile phone and for the first time in Irish uh, case, we were able to triangulate his calls during the morning mm. and we were able to um, uh, do what we call cell site analysis which we were able to show obviously that when he received calls They went through certain masts and we were able to track his movements from where he said he was that morning out to the area where uh, he lived in the country and uh, near the scene of the crime. Now, we also discovered that his marriage was in a very poor state. He told us different and we discovered then he was having an affair. And the the affair was so uh, advanced that we found emails on his computer Uh, indicating he was wanting to leave Rachel and take up with this other lady and uh, be with her and his two children. So uh, what Joe was telling us was far from what we were finding out. He became a suspect, and uh, eventually he was uh, charged with the murder. And after a very lengthy trial, he was convicted. He still protested his innocence and still does to this day, even though he, he received a life sentence. So uh, it was a very famous case for the simple reason that the technology uh, that his phone possessed was uh, evidential and was his ultimate downfall. Like you know,
0: it's 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 amazing when like the Joe O'Reilly case, and there was another case that I'm forgetting which one, where it was like the same circumstance where um, the man murders his wife and. It was the one where he tried to, the the, uh, the murderer tried to set it up as his wife fell down the steps. And yes, uh, they, they tried to set, yes. set it up this week and they have another relationship with a woman going on. It's it, yes. it's that psychotic mentality. They think they can do absolutely anything.
1: Yes, uh, definitely a psychopathic uh, man was Colin Wheel, And the circumstance of this is where uh, he called 999 and said his wife had fallen down the stairs and uh, they, they put him onto the ambulance personnel who told him to to, to uh, you know, try to give her first aid, and he was saying there was no movement out of her, and that's lucky she appeared, appeared to be dead. The ambulance arrived, and uh, they found that she was very cold, but she was wrapped in a duvet, at the, and he alleged to us that uh, she had fallen down the stairs. There was only the two of them in the house, and that was it, Um but when uh, the post-mortem revealed that she had been strangled and by way of ligature, even though there was no mark of a ligature on her. Uh, so uh, sort of also on Colin Whelan, when he was in the hospital, uh, one of the nurses noticed down his shirt that there was a scrape mark. And uh, she said to him, you should get yourself checked out. You have had an awful fright. And he said, OK. So when he took off his shirt, there was a big, huge scrape mark down down his chest, uh, where we, we, where and then the, the police were called. Uh, we preserved the scene, the scene, and uh, he appeared to be a very genuine type of guy uh, on first appearances and first uh, interview. And uh, after the postmortem, we then launched a murder investigation. We preserved the scene, and we did find it in the house. The scene of the crime was outside the the. the uh, the uh ensuite door in the master bedroom where she had been strangled. we found the rope the, the ligature was actually the um uh, the the rope from his uh, is is his, his nightgown and uh, he had wrapped it round a towel to strangle his wife and uh then he, he he killed her upstairs and then dragged her body downstairs to make it look like a fall. Now, uh, the post mortem also revealed that there was no injuries consistent with a fall down the stairs. And in actual fact, the back of her buttocks, there were burn marks, which would indicate that she was dragged down the stairs. Now, the reason being that he did this was number one, he uh, had taken out a, a policy for £400,000 on his wife. Uh, initially 200 before he got married and then when they got married up upped another 200,000 and uh he was going to cash in on on a on a, a policy for 400,000 pounds. Now this guy was a computer programmer and he was well up on computers but uh he was uh, having what we discovered when we looked at his computers he was having a cyber affair with a girl in Wales that he had uh, it's hard to believe that he fell in love, and she, well, he said he never loved her, but she fell in love with him. We went—I went to Wales and spoke with her, and she said that uh, she was in love with this guy she met online, and his name was Colin Whelan. And we showed her a picture, and she says that's him. And we told her that his wife uh, had died, and we were breaking the news gently to her, and she said, "I know she was killed in a car crash." Now, Colin Whelan had been involved in a car crash years earlier where a woman was killed, but he was using that scenario to say that this is how his wife was killed to this girl in Wales. And we said, no, his wife was killed only recently. She had been uh, strangled to death, uh, and we believe Colin is the is the culprit. Now, the poor lady took an awful fright, you know, mm-hmm. but she, she said she wanted to cooperate with us 100%, and she said she had quite a lot of material From uh, the computer that Colin was sending her greeting cards and emails and this, that, and the other. And that's what was done. We, We spent 12 hours there downloading her computer. And we spent 12 hours taking a statement from her in respect of her involvement with Colin Whelan. Now, it's hard to believe that she never met him in a physical format, but she was totally in love with him and was looking forward to meeting him and
0: uh especially ba- back then i mean today it might be more common absolutely. for that but yeah
1: yeah yeah and also in respect of what we found on his computer which was amazing and this was this is what was our uh, we found obviously the insurance policy on his computer which showed the motive and we also showed that he had been planning to kill her uh, even before he married her uh, and he had looked mm. up sites on asphyxiation and rendering unconscious and all of, all of those type of sites. And he had looked up uh, a guy from North Carolina, Henry Lewis Wallace, who was uh, convicted of nine murders of women and where he used uh, uh, certain ligatures and didn't leave a mark and he used a towel and that. And he, uh, Colin Whelan's uh, modus operandi was exactly the same as, as Henry Lewis Wallace. So uh, we were able to, he, he was, he was, hell-bent on killing his wife like you know for this money but he he had played a, a blinder because he he uh he had let's say he killed her in march but at christmas time like he had bought her so many presents and left them under the christmas tree and wouldn't let her wrap them up or anything and when people would visit the house they'd say look at all the presents and his wife would say, oh, yeah, Colin bought them for me. Like he was playing or he was the perfect husband. He'd send her uh, flowers to her workplace every week. And the girls at work would say, you really got a good man there. Like, you know, uh, little did they think that he was going to end up killing her. Like, you know. Uh, so so he was, sick. Yeah, the- so sick, yeah. But on the day he killed her at work, he went into a local store and bought her a present and paid by credit card. And was seen made sure he was seen under the cameras mm-hmm. and engaged the cashier in a conversation to to tell him that he loved his wife and he was buying her a, a present to surprise her and this that and the other you know so he so one of the first things that we suspected him and we said like you know tell us the truth and he said you why would I kill my wife sure didn't I buy her a present that, that that day like and you know so he, he was playing the game like he mm-hmm. he was he was playing the game. He was very, very clever in ways, but stupid in other ways. Like you know, now he was. Uh, we eventually charged him with the murder, and he was on bail. And then he staged his own uh, disappearance. He, he he, we believed, uh, uh, he, his car was found abandoned at a spot, mm-hmm. uh, 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 of the in a place called Hoth in Dublin, uh, where people normally have taken their lives, jumped off the cliffs there. But uh, I, I knew this guy, he was, he was, uh, I knew him, he was so, uh, uh, if you ever see that film, Living with the Enemy, mm-hmm. it's exactly, uh, he, he would have everything spick and span in the house. Like, you know, if you opened the press, you'd have the, like all the tins in the one place, you'd have, everything was just spick and span, like, you know. And uh, he, uh, the way he parked his car at the, at, at, in this particular car park would indicate that it wasn't, Parked in a manner by someone who was deranged and wanted to kill themselves, you know. So I, I always believed and I knew myself in my heart and soul, and it's that he was alive. But where was he and where he had gone? But uh, some fourteen months later, uh, we discovered uh, by a guy who knew him from school had visited a a, a a bar in Majorca and seen him working behind the bar, and eventually. Uh, told us, and we got the Guardia Civil to check it out, and he was there. So we, we uh, uh, put in place the uh, uh, European arrest warrant, which we did, and we took him back. Now he pleaded guilty to the murder, and he's still in prison serving serving his time. That was in two thousand and four. You know, so uh, he he was something else. He was the ultimate psychopath. Uh, had it all planned out, and. Uh, and one of the aspects that I, I what I did initially was you know he said he was the only person in the house with his wife and he heard her falling down the stairs and she was dead and that was it and uh, I checked out the alarm system which he had and uh, the log from the alarm would show showed even though the alarm was turned off it still was sending pulses to the the contacts on the doors and windows that no one had entered the house or left the house or interfered with it in any way so we were able to put him in the house with his wife and the postmortem said she was strangled so like it put him in the suspect bracket straight away and uh you know from our analysis of the computers and the finding of his insurance policy and that we discovered that like you know he 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 we had a motive, and he had pre planned the murder, like you know, even going back the six months before he got married, like you know, looking upside, so he had he had this idea to kill his wife that he had been dating for ten years, so i, I, I you know it's it's hard to fathom out, but it's uh the story is there in 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 the book like you know so um
0: yeah, yeah, and uh it, the the book is full of uh of stories like this, and if if someone out there, if listeners out there are into uh, these true crime stories, I mean this is this is the book for you. It's, it's a fascinating read. Um, and Patrick, like I said at the at the top of the show, you do a fantastic job storytelling, just like you're doing right now on this show. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Well, look, there's the some good stories there, and and uh, the other one one of the other murders that uh, I mentioned is Jacqueline McDonough, who was beaten to death in her house by her husband who, uh, like, in front of the children, and he bet her so bad and then got a a garden shears and stuck it in her head, like, you know, and uh, she died. And, uh, you know, he he alleged then and got one of his children to ring the police and say that someone had broke into the house and attacked the mother. And, like, he played dumb all along. And then uh, we were able to put it together. But uh, he, he surprised us by... Uh, coming to the police station with his solicitor and uh, alleging that uh, his wife had attacked him with a knife and he wanted to defend himself and he hit her once. And then he became, um, uh, he, he remembers being floating out of his body and he he he, he was sort of in a different place. So uh, this guy was a bodybuilder and what we call, you don't have it over there, bare knuckle fighter. And he was built, very, very strong build, and he took a lot of steroids, hmm. but uh, it was true. Let's say, and I, I mentioned it in the book. I was out with some friends one night, and they were asking me about the murder. And I don't talk about it. I just said, "Look, I, I just don't reveal or say anything to my friends or that." Like, and one of them said, "God, he's a big bodybuilder. I'm sure he had. I'm sure he's using the steroids as an excuse for killing her." And uh, I didn't know really what he meant, but I took in what he was saying, and I did ask. Uh, The pathologist, when I spoke to them, they said, yeah, there's a thing in America called roid rage. And uh, it's where people who have taken steroids and they have successfully defended their case and been acquitted on the basis that the effects of steroids was the reason why they killed whoever they did. Uh, They get into a rage and it affects their mental state. So I believed then I twigged I said god this is what he's this is what this fellow is at like you know he's going to use this as a defense and I went about looking at his blood samples uh, that we took off him and it was the, the sample of blood we took from him was 52 hours after the murder so uh, I had that blood analyzed to see was there any foreign uh, hormones in it and there was and I had to send a sample to uh, France because the Irish state lab hadn't the facility to check for steroids. And uh, we discovered there was one uh, foreign steroid in his body that he would have had to have administered by injection at some stage. Right. So I got a, a guy in, eventually in England. He was um, Dr. David Cowan. He's a professor and he was the top man in analysing uh, steroids and he was he's used in the Olympic Committee for uh, doping and that. And that's what I remembered at the time. it was The, the Olympics were on uh, that summer and uh, he, he was used as the top man. Now, I contacted him and he was saying, yes, I can help you out. And I said, this steroid, I want to know about it and I want to know, can you calculate back the 52 hours to tell me what quantity would have been in this man's body at the time of the murder and would have had any effect on his mental state and he was able to do that and provided me with a report to say that the uh, steroid in his body was quite low and he calculated it Mm. back and said that the steroid amount in this man's body at the time of killing his wife was so low it wouldn't have any effect on his mental state or reasoning whatsoever so i was able to knock his defense out of the park before the mm-hmm. trial ever started, so on that basis he had nowhere to go, and he pleaded guilty to the murder. Then you know, and uh, he's still in doing life; he's in locked up as well, like you know. But it's uh, it was uh, it was the type of uh, uh, thinking you have to engage in to to sort of outsmart the criminal, like you know.
0: You have to be uh, one one step ahead too, like there were the, the yeah, with the yeah, uh, yeah. defense team, not knowing the defense they would bring, but yeah, getting a, getting a hint yeah. of it.
1: yes, 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 absolutely, absolutely, you know, and I, I was always proud of that one because uh, that girl's parents were always very appreciated of of the guard of the police and how they investigated it and how they got the husband locked up, you know, and mm-hmm. that was, you know, but look there there's another one there. I don't know I, I speak about Nile door. And he was a young chap who was beaten to death in the street in in the city. I was uh, a detective inspector in Dundalk. And uh, uh, it was only a little piece of DNA that solved it, like, you know. But uh, their family uh, really appreciated the fact that they got someone, we got someone and we were able to lock them up. And uh, they said to me after the trial, like, they, uh, after the guy pleaded guilty, they came over and they said, thank you very much, like, uh, and the mother gave give me a hug and she says, only for you, only for you. Like, you know, we'd, we wouldn't know where to go or turn, like, you know. And mm-hmm. I feel that that's a good testament and that the job was well done and that uh, the Garda Shia provided the answers and did the job well. And that's that's all we're there. We're public servants and that's it, like, you know.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's a really good point there and maybe may a good point to end on. Um, I, I don't know what the... What the mentality or the attitude towards policing is right now in Ireland, but in the U.S. for good reason. There's been I don't know. You've probably seen the headlines. There's been a lot of really a lot of uh, police police violence against innocent people who, who have been killed in the uh, in the United States. And it's great to see a book like this um, with you sharing these stories. Um, from your your long career as a detective, of I call it old old fashioned police work, but you know actually, like you said, serving the people, serving the the victims' families, and, and bringing uh, bringing the suspect, bringing the perpetrator to, to justice. So very very refreshing to uh, to see this today.
1: Yeah, well, listen, John, I, I appreciate that, um, but it is uh, like uh, the book is, is is a genuine reflection of how I dealt with these cases and uh, you know when I retired uh, the the letters I received from the families were very heartwarming. Uh, people who wished me the best and thanked me again so much for uh, my dedication and uh, how I provided the answers for them and what they felt about me. And when I launched my book there uh, on the 1st of, of, of September there, they all, they all 1st um, uh, of October, they all turned up at my launch and were very, very supportive of the book and very supportive of me. So I think that's a very good testament to, let's say, going right round the circle, like, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and it meant a lot to me, like, you know, but I, I, I I, I got a lovely email from a serving member of the police who said to me that, uh, he said to me, look, Pat, I hear you're retiring. You're going to be a big loss to the police force. You're well-known uh, and you've done a marvellous job and you can leave uh, the job with your head held high. You can look yourself in the mirror every morning and know that you were doing a fantastic job because there's a lot of people way higher rank than you can't look themselves in the mirror in the morning. So mm-hmm. he said, look, no, but be, be very proud of what you've done. And in all fairness, since I wrote the book, I've had nothing but positive comments. And uh, I'm really sort of maybe realizing now that I made a bigger impact than I had thought all along, like, you know, uh, but no, the, the book is, 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 uh, it captures a lot of stories and a lot of what I believed in, like, you know, being professional. Like I always told my teams, like, you know, you have to be um, honest, uh, you know, accountable, respectful, responsible, and professional. And when it comes to evidence and that, like, you know, collecting evidence, make things as simple as possible. Like, you know, uh, you have to portray and represent what, Evidence you have in a very logical manner, so people will understand it. Not only our prosecution service, but also a jury, like you know. So uh, there were my guidelines, and uh, they worked for me. And uh, you know, that's that's all I can say. You know, and I appreciate the time, John, you've given me to
0: explain. You.
1: You know? appreciate
0: your time being so generous with your time uh the book is called the making of a detective a guard story of investigating some of ireland's most notorious crimes um i know it's on amazon because that's where i bought it on my kindle on amazon i'm sure it's available it's available in bookstores across the u.s probably
1: yeah i, I yeah but I, you'll definitely get it on amazon like mm-hmm. you know definitely it's uh, you get it on amazon um and what I would say as well, just to round it off there, I, my colleague was shot dead in January, uh, 2013. Uh, he was one of my detectives and he was doing a cash escort and he was ambushed and shot uh, in the head and died instantly. And, uh, it took us five years to, to, uh, to, I was investigating it took me five years to get someone before the courts and, uh, I must say i've had tremendous help uh, from homeland security uh who I worked closely with, and uh we went to america to to glean some evidence in that and I must say they really really impressed me very very professional guys that I worked with uh, from homeland security, very dedicated and they looked on the death of my colleague as the death of one of theirs so that 's how close we were and how close we we sort of uh uh, engaged in, in trying to glean evidence in America, which we did. And I must say, I have the height of respect for the guys I work with over there. They're like really, really good. Like, you know, and we would not have solved the crime without their, uh, without their cooperation. Uh, so I just like to mention that, like, you know,
0: yeah, and I'm sorry to hear about uh, the death of your colleague, but uh, glad you were able to, uh, to bring the perpetrator to, uh, to justice.
1: Uh, I really appreciate uh, your your time, John, to to get my story out there. And if anyone wanted to, you know, come back or f- find out any more, you know, interesting points about the book, mm-hmm. or uh, like, you know, certainly contact me. Or I can, you know, I, I'm available available to speak with anyone. Like, there's no no problem. Like, you know.
0: All right. Thank you. Pat. Okay,
1: John. Listen, thanks very much, John. Have a good day. Thank you.
0: I hope you guys enjoyed that interview today with Patrick Mary. You know, I don't, I haven't done a lot of shows like this. I've only done a handful um, where I'm bringing on people that are former detectives who are taking you uh, on the crime scene and detailing, uh, you know, some really brutal, brutal crimes. And it's not something I get into a lot. Uh, it is very popular. the uh, The true crime shows people people love hearing about this stuff, and I can see why because it is truly fascinating. I'm retracing the steps and figuring out what exactly happened, and getting inside the mind of a killer. Um, with that being said, you know I did mention to Patrick that you know I've just recently I had a show here, episode 200, where I had Pete Quinones and uh, Rayford Davis on our uh, cop roundtable. Where we talked about policing gone wrong in the United States, and it is important, and I think it's important to mention bringing on someone like Patrick who highlights how policing can be done right uh, to serve the public, uh, to help to find psychotic people who have murdered other people and, uh, and get them off the streets. So that, my friends, is uh, what, in my mind, what policing should be. Policing should not be harassing the public and um, doing other horrible things like shooting innocent people through windows. Policing should be when a crime occurs getting to the truth of what happened at the end of the day the courts will uh, will serve justice so I of course will link to Patrick's book on the show notes page I picked it up on Kindle on Amazon but I'm also getting a signed copy which I'm which I'm excited about and uh, you can do the same the show notes page of course is lionsofliberty.com slash ff202 I said you could do the same by buying it on Kindle or buying <laughs> a physical copy I don't know if you can get a signed copy or not probably not But uh, go ahead, do that, check it out, and I don't have much else to say, or I have nothing else to say. I hope everyone has a great weekend. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up, and the fire is a liberty burning.